0: Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be exploring the afterlife and the unconscious mind. My guest is Dr. Betty Kovacs, who has taught symbolic and mythic language for many years. She is serves on the advisory board of the Forever Family Foundation. She is the author of The Miracle of Death, There is Nothing But Life, as well as Merchants of Light, the consciousness that is changing the world. And now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Betty. What a pleasure it is to be with you once again.
1: Thank you, Jess.
0: We're going to be exploring the afterlife and how it impacts us at the unconscious or the subconscious mind. In, in your book, The Miracle of Death, you report many communications with your deceased son and your deceased husband uh, that are mediated through what we've talked about earlier, the, the language of the soul.
1: I prefer that, the language of soul or the organ of soul, even more than the unconscious, because I think that there's so much more than we've basically understood uh, when Jung used that word, the unconscious or
0: subconscious. Well, I'm under the impression that Jung himself believed that the afterlife existed within uh, what he called the collective unconscious.
1: yes. Uh, it just seems that it exists everywhere. <laughs> it's almost like an, and it's in uh, the field of fields, so that it would be everywhere. And that would be perhaps the, the organs through which it can operate within the human mind.
0: Well, of course, William Blake, the great poet, said if we could just see things as they really are, we, we would know that everything is infinite, which suggests that, that we're already living simultaneously in every world. and The, the afterlife is, is actually with us constantly.
1: That's a, that's a beautiful way of putting it. And I think it's exactly right that it's always here. It's just like our ancestors thought of the three worlds, the world of pure mind, pure intelligence that is perpetually coming into being in the subtle world. And when it touches that subtle world, it actually shapes itself in laws. And we call them archetypes. But these are the essential structures of the universe. And then we are the ones in time and space who are perpetually being in touch with uh, the uh, subtle world, if indeed we haven't cut ourselves off from it. But what is so important to remember is that these three worlds are always together. They're perpetually coming into being and, and moving so that Everything is infinite, and as Blake said so beautifully, or the universe in a grain of sand, if we could really hold that vision of how everything is perpetually in beingness
0: of course it's it's hard to go about our daily life with that thought constantly in mind. I mean, people have to brush their teeth and take care of their daily chores, chop wood and carry water, as as the Zen Buddhists would say. Uh, So, we lose sight of uh, that mystical vision, that sense of the infinite.
1: I think, though, that there will be a time, can be a time, when that will all be perpetually one, always moving and coming into being uh, you know, we speak today of the left brain and and fearing that it gets in the way of the symbolic brain if we want to just try to be in the dream or the vision and, and not let the rational mind interrupt. I think if we really, when we learn how to allow that energy of consciousness which exists infinitely to flow through the spinal cord up through all of the brain components and then with the right brain, the symbolic brain that will feed into the left brain, the rational conceptual mind as Vico imagined that there would be this perpetual or this continuum of movement between these uh, minds and that even when we brush our teeth, we would have that awareness, that presence of being.
0: It does sound like a beautiful uh, image. It's. I think it's one that I aspire to. Uh, I, <laughs> you to aspire,
1: that's me. aspire is the word.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I'm a long way from being there, and I, I'm probably uh, further along, though, than I, I suspect many people, because I've been having conversations like this one for a long time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But it Strikes me, let's say in your experience, Betty, you report uh, in in your book, The Miracle of Death, of of detailed encounters with Istvan and Pishti, or uh, deceased husband and son. But they almost, as I read the um, manuscript again, they seem to be almost entirely at the symbolic level. Very rarely are they at the literal level, or, or am I wrong about that?
1: What do you mean by the literal
0: level? Conversations that might be like we're having right now, sort of uh, uh, back and forth linear in, in some way, one word following another.
1: Oh, no, it really was like conversation, and that's what was uh, so beautiful and convincing about it, is that, uh, of course, we were experiencing, especially my husband, because he had never been concerned <laughs> with those matters. And, uh, and actually, the interesting aside here is that in one vision, he asked Pishti, why was I never... I wonder why I was never concerned with these things. And Pishti said, because they had been experiencing the fact that they were of the same soul, they were twin souls. And he said to his dad, had you continued as you were as a child with those concerns, you and mom might not have been able to conceive me. So you had to put yourself on ice until I stepped into the other world. And it was true after Pishti died, Ishvan would come into my study and say, what should I read next? I've got to make up for 50 years. So it was, uh, but it was, and also my own experiences with Pishti is that he was very present. Although for me, I didn't see him as an, an image. I saw, I felt him as an energy and I knew where that energy was in the room. But with uh, my husband, his dad, and also, uh, Pishti's girlfriend, Jenny, they actually saw the image, but. Uh, Pichi told his dad that it wouldn't be good for me to see the image because as a mother, I'd always been concerned with the image keeping. Well, where, where is it? That it was very important to help me to let go of that image so that the energy could be present, but not the image. So it was very much his presence. I would think one thing and he would answer it.
0: It's very interesting to me to try and uh, get a handle on this because I cannot say that I've ever had detailed exchanges of this sort with any of my departed loved ones or, or friends. But I have the impression from your description that that they are energy beings, uh, more than uh, embodied beings.
1: Oh yes, not embodied. Uh, uh- his consciousness was present and, uh, and extremely present, just fully present in a way. At least it felt fully to what I had experienced. And, uh, and it was so healing for us. Uh, that, uh, that we did have uh, the experiences with him. It helped us. I mean, it was very, very healing because we realized that he is in another dimension and yet he's here and he is still creating. And that's what he wanted us to remember. It was always, he didn't want to tell us something. He, he wanted us to remember it as if all of us really know all of this. It's just we can't remember it. And, uh, and it was interesting with, um, with, uh, Ishvan, my husband because before pishti died i had been working with shamans from south america and i had uh, an experience in which it was very clear to me in that vision uh, that uh, they were of the same soul and in fact uh, I was told, you thought you actually agreed to name Pishti, (laughs) Pishti, because people, I remember my uh, chair in the English department said, you're not going to name him that, are you? And Ishtvan, well, they'd been, the firstborn had been named that for a long time. And I finally thought, why not? That's fine with that. But in the vision, it said, you thought that you made that decision, but they could have been, he could not have been named anything else. They are, uh, both uh, of the same soul. And when I came home and I meant I didn't tell them, <laughs> I didn't tell my son anything about the vision except I said, I had an experience in which it seemed that you and your dad were of the same soul. And he was painting something. He didn't even turn around. He said, oh, it sounds about right. And Ishvan said the same thing. So I didn't say any more about it. Well, a couple of years later, Uh, Ishtvan's first vision with Pishti was when he told him that. And and not not only told him, they, they experienced it. So it wasn't just conversation. Ishtvan said that he, he felt like he shot out of his body and was going through a long, uh, funnel, I think he called it, in which he saw many souls on both sides. He saw faces that were his own face. He saw others that were Pishti's face. And then he saw many people in which they were one face. And when he would, when they were two people, Pishti would talk to him about that experience. When they were one, he just knew it. So it was combined with, with knowing and finding out more about ourselves, but also connecting to that spirit world is as though that spirit world is right here with us all the time.
0: Now, I think for clarity of our our viewers who may not understand the full story, uh, I, we should say that Pishti died first, and, and I think Ist- Istvan died what a year or two later.
1: Uh, two years, yes, later, and it was it was a a very powerful time. Uh, In our lives, first of all, my mother was killed by a car, and then one year uh, later, my our son was in a car accident, and he was in the trauma center for 13 days, and the doctors decided to take him off the life support, that he wouldn't make it on exactly the day my mother had been killed one year before, the same day and the same hour. And I had nothing to do with it. It was just these synchronicities were happening. And, uh, it was really during that period after Pishti's death that Istvan and I had many experiences until he was killed. And he went to Hungary, uh, to visit his parents. He also had business there and he was killed there. But, uh, and I did have with Istvan afterwards, but it, we had most of our experiences with our son during that time before Istvan's death.
0: And also, for clarity for our viewers, uh, I think it's correct to say that uh, the names Istvan and Pishti are both Hungarian names.
1: Yes, yes. Istvan was was born in Hungary and uh, fought in the revolution and escaped into Yugoslavia and then came as a refugee to the United States.
0: So, uh, I mean, in other languages, uh, I can understand where somebody might question, why are you naming your son Pishti? <laughs>
1: Oh, and it's a very interesting thing it, P-I-S-T-I and of course it was pronounced when he went to school the teacher pronounced it Pisti and so we, we, when we picked him up one day he had a name tag on of Steve and of course that is that just happened to be the translation but said to him well who's that and he said it's me so he went with all of his friends as Steve and so when I told him I said do you realize that's really the translation of your name well no he didn't, but there was someone, uh, there was a a character named Steve, and I think that's why he chose the name, but he was not going to have that name pronounced that way in school. So, he had two names (laughs) growing up.
0: Well, you know, with my name Mishlove, I also have encountered a lot of teasing when I was a child.
1: (laughs) I can Uh, imagine.
0: Growing Mm. up in in the Midwest of the United States. so, so back to our topic here, uh, you describe Istvan and, and Pishti after their demise as being in another dimension. And my, what I'm curious about is the relationship of that other dimension to what we think of as, as our own consciousness.
1: Well, I think it's all one. I do think it's all one. I think we differentiate it, uh, given our culture and our experience and our lack of experience. I think it is all one. It's perpetually being. And yet, because we live in time and space, we... Put these things in different spaces and different categories. But uh, as you said, you know, we do have to brush our teeth and buy the groceries and that sort of thing. And I think then we sort of close a certain part off. And as the uh, Huxley had said, you know, there's that valve, we're all born into universal mind, it's always who we are, it's always present. But we have a valve that we have to kind of close down and just allow a trickle of it to flow through, so that we can do these things in ordinary daily life. And then it's as though we forgot how to release that valve. (laughs) But if we just release the valve, we are where we've always been.
0: You know, there's a, a passage, I believe it's in Homer's Odyssey, where Odysseus goes to the underground temple and he communicates with his deceased mother and they're having an interaction and then all of a sudden many other spirits notice that like a channel of communication is open <laughs> and, and they come flooding and they all want to talk through, um, Uh, the channel to reach to Odysseus. So, he has to shut it down because otherwise it would be overwhelming with too many spirits wanting to come through.
1: (laughs) And that must be, you know, mediums talk about that, about just a flood of people coming through and they all want to talk and get through. And I'm thinking this is surely a result of our having closed off our minds as a species practically to this other dimension. If all of us were able to release that valve and be present and allow uh, past, present, future, to be present now and what we call the other world, the underworld, all of it to be present. If we knew how to do that, we probably wouldn't have that situation of people just absolutely knocking themselves over to get through. There must be such an effort to get through to people they love on the other side and to help them to know they're okay. We're creating, Uh, we'll see you again.
0: In our previous conversations, we talked about different times in human history where people did seem more open to, to this than at other times. and I, I would imagine that uh, maybe in the most ancient times that you write about, the cave cultures, uh, maybe when people were the most open to this uh, interpenetration of the dimensions.
1: Yes, I think certainly from all the evidence, they had the rituals, they set aside the time, and they had the place uh, where they could be present. And also in the megalithic uh, period later, following that, where the structures were to uh, help us keep in touch with the rhythms of a, of the earth and the cosmos, because there's always been that information from the ancestors that we need to know these laws of nature because they are the laws of our soul, our psyche. And if we can live in harmony with the laws of the cosmos, it will open up these dimensions of our own soul. And so the human being was seen as the mediator between the earth energies and the cosmos. That must have been, to really do that, must be a a tremendous feeling and presence in life. I just think we can be so much more present. When uh, I had... I had struggled all my life to know something beyond what I knew. Uh, and and it just seemed, when I first went to South America, and uh, they were talking about the visionary state. We'd have these rituals in the visionary. They did work with San Pedro. And so when the shaman came to me, I said, listen, give me double. Because I never can get in touch with anything. I just get caught in the rational brain. And, uh, well, he almost did. <laughs> but uh it just was so hard. And it certainly our ancestors had figured that out. They knew through certainly sacred plants i mean there was so many sacred plants that would help open release that valve that's what it does it does it just releases the valve and we know that that happened in the cave cultures because, probably because uh, there were sacred plants available in europe at that place at that time so i think that there was the knowledge in these cultures that we can experience our vastness and then Let the valve go back so we can operate in everyday life. And there's a beauty to that, too. You know, the play the game of matter, of coming in and being individuals and loving each other and seeing their uniqueness and developing the uniqueness. It's a wonderful game to play. And, of course, we have to experience the deaths of those people. But if we know, if we know the game we're playing, then It's still a grief, but we also know the joy of the larger game.
0: I'm under the impression, uh, in particular from earlier interviews I've done with Stephanie Stevens, who is a Jungian scholar writing about Carl Jung's interactions with the dead, uh, about which he writes quite extensively in his uh, autobiography and in the Red Book, Uh, Jung seems to feel that there's a distinction between the archetypal images of the unconscious mind and the actual Dead, and I would think that uh, for anybody opening themselves up to this area, uh, they be begin to question. Or it would be logical to question uh, if I'm having such an experience. Is it a an archetypal projection from my subconscious mind, or is is this an authentic communication?
1: That's one thing I didn't worry too much about, because if there is. Th- pure intelligence moving into the subtle world, it immediately takes the shape of these essential structures. It immediately takes the shape of these laws. And I think that the, these laws uh, are archetypes. And uh, for example, I've tried to give an example of the difference. Uh, Ishvan would be with Pishti and they knew each other. They knew uh, what was going on and talking. And then in the first vision, Ishvan Realized suddenly that there was a female, feminine being with them and that she had always been with them. And it was, he, then he allowed himself to just really experience this being. And he said, she was the most beautiful being I had ever seen, but she had no face. I couldn't help but think of the prehistoric goddesses with no face. But at any rate, he became aware of this and she even, she talked with him and he realized she is always, this is a, this presence, this essence of the universe, this feminine, loving, creative essence. And she even said that her name was Syra, and it would be Shira in Hungarian. And I thought that was interesting that she even gave him a name. And then, uh, so that's an arch—I think I would call that an archetypal being. And near the, the all, just a few weeks before he went to Hungary when he was killed uh, in an automobile accident there, he told me that he uh, he was always in all his visions after that. But then in this vision he was at Machu Picchu, and he there was a waterfall there. I've never seen a waterfall at Machu Picchu, but there was in this one. And he said then he saw. Saira, or this feminine being, in the waterfall. And he said she was ancient, and then she would become beautiful, a young woman, but she would go between these two. And he then stepped into the waterfall and merged with her. I think this is definitely an archetypal experience. It wasn't someone who had been in this world and died. She was much vaster than that. And I then started experiencing her very profoundly in my visions. And I asked Pishti one time, I said, Pishti, I, I, I'm having trouble understanding this. I I feel she's an archetypal being, but she's so personal, she's intimate and cosmic. And then he said, Mom, her her she is so vast, her body uh covers solar systems and galaxies. And I thought to myself did did my mind do did my mind make that up?" And I was absolutely stunned many years later when I was reading Mary Rodwell, who works with these children who seem to know that they are from non-human intelligences uh, not of the earth, but they have Agreed to be born to help us through this evolutionary phase, and one of those children said, My memory of where I came from was of bodies so vast they covered solar systems and galaxies. There was the same language. I don't know what to do with that, but I certainly found it interesting at least I no longer thought, well, I had just made that up. there's something something vast about." the consciousness that exists in the universe and does it appear to us as an archetype? I have some questions about that, but I leave it open.
0: If I could sort of summarize what I'm getting from this discussion. We started out by talking about the one mind that we all share and it seems to me that this one mind is is infinite and it can be divided up in infinitely many different ways so that when we delve into the our own depths uh, we may encounter uh, deceased loved ones we may encounter devas deities archetypes uh, extraterrestrials uh, creatures from other planets, uh, the, the, the possibilities are, are pretty much infinite.
1: I think you've exactly said it, yes. It's infinite possibilities, and and there's no beginning and no end, it seems. <laughs> I think there are, uh, Istvan had uh, a vision of uh Being a part of seeing universes coming into being and then dissolving. But he said, not necessarily even in that order. It was that it was the most magnificent thing he was allowed to experience. And he said, I had the mind of a physicist. I understood it. And Pishti reminded him, Dad, when you go back, you won't be able to, you won't remember, uh, that, you know, what you do now as a physicist. But at any rate, it was, he realized that he was both that universe that was coming into being and going out, he was everything at once. It was everything at once, but we were all playing these very, very different roles and in a a masterful game.
0: I mean, I have the sense that this... Experience of everything at once is, that is the true reality. And, uh, we, you and I here uh, communicating as we are now electronically, uh, it all seems so very real to our external senses. But a- at a deeper level, this is the illusion that yes. we're separate.
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And that's what, you know, in all, almost all visionary experience and dreams, we realize that, that That we are one, but we also, I think, are learning as creators how to create the uniqueness of each thing, each person, we might say. And I don't think we can do that without the uniqueness of everybody else. And I think that the wholeness, the unity is not that we don't just go back into a big blob. (laughs) I think we go back as unique. Beings to the degree that we've been able to create that. And we take all of that knowledge and that uniqueness to the wholeness, but it's all one. And it's the getting the glimpse that we're all one is, is a wonderful thing. And then it's also wonderful to come back in and, and play those, try to play a unique game, you know, try to do something that's creative, which it is. It is creative. I had. One of the most profound experiences before Pishti died, even uh, in working with the shamans from South America, is that uh, I was at Machu Picchu and I was up above looking down at my dead body and I saw these spirits just moving it across and I knew they were taking it to Picchu, which is the, the ancient old woman of the mountain. And I thought, oh great, I'm going to be admitted to the mountain. And these spirits, these beings will give me the secrets of the universe. Well, we got right up to the the mountain and it stopped. No entry. And then, boom, suddenly I realized I was the mountain. I was that gurney. I was a dead body. I was those spirits. But of course it wasn't in that linear, suddenly it was that I had that experience of, of we are it, as Ellen Watts used to say. And then I found myself in a forest realizing I'm a creator. And I sat there and I said, but I can't create a world. And the voice that came was so moving to me. It said, oh, you just did create a world in which you cannot create. That's the world you created. We can do nothing but create. And that was so moving to me to realize all of this negative lack of confidence. (laughs) I can't do that, that. That's what I was creating.
0: In other words, uh, we there's some. You might even call it a secret reason that we have decided to uh, embed ourselves in this world as mortal beings with all the limitations that uh, that we face.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. There's something in all of this that that we can use for some faster, greater reason. <laughs>
0: strikes me as well that, uh, even though I think it is ultimately an illusion, or as, as the Hindus sometimes say, maya, uh, from the point of view of uh, a mortal being as we are, it's really quite real. And, and from this perspective, uh, it is important to try and distinguish, let us say, between a, a psychological projection and an, and an authentic uh, psycho spiritual communication.
1: Yes, and I I've always had trouble with the word illusion or Maya as illusion, because I think we it's a reality we have created for various purposes. Oh, uh, and I I wonder about the projections uh, that we do need to think of those things and work with them, but there's certain archetypes we might say that we experience, or the dead, which they make very clear they're very much alive, that we know that, I mean, I never, the only people who were dead, so to speak, that I talked with was Ishwan and uh, Pishti, except that twice I did see my mother, and uh, it was more in, uh, activity or what was happening, Uh, but we didn't really speak with each other. So I have no ability to speak with, with others other than those two. But, uh, for instance, the, the jackal had come to me and also to Ishvan. I think that as the Egyptian gods, were archetypes. And the jackal is an archetype. And he was an archetype of that energy within us that can transform what is we call dead or decayed into new life. We all have that ability of the imaginal cells. I think he is definitely that. But there was um, one experience with I don't know whether it's archetypal beings or real beings, uh, from other dimensions, but, uh, I had probably the, one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had in my life is that, uh, I and two other women were doing a ritual for the, for children, for the earth. Pishti hadn't died yet, even at that point. And, I, there was, I talk about it in, actually in both books, but there was a huge disc that I experienced that came, I saw it, my eyes were closed and it came through the sliding glass doors and it hovered over my head. And it, I knew that it was the most powerful cosmic consciousness. It was, it was filled with consciousness far too great for me to experience. But then out of the bottom of it swirled a being I think I felt she took form in a limited way so that I could experience them and went right down through the crown chakra and into my heart. And I saw that she had uh to over I about to her waist she had white satin dress and she had a white satin square hat. So here we had a mandala with the round disc and the square hat. But I have never in my life experience, that kind of consciousness. And she sang through me, We are here. You have called us, and we have come. Your planet has called us, and we are here. Can you feel us? Well, it was just the most incredible feeling of this consciousness. And she she said, and you... To the three of us, we are here for you all three, and we are the light that circles around your planet. We are the light that circles around your planet. And she told us, we are ready to connect to your planet. And I thought this was an archetypal experience that we were having, but that it was an experience that the species and the earth was having because the light had been there. We had drawn that light to us. And now it was powerful enough, this love, light, and consciousness on our planet, that we could pull it to the planet and connect it. And that's what she was saying. And she said, and you have connected this day to all those people on your planet who are creating worlds of love and peace. I was so exhausted after that experience. Uh, one of the women was a, kind of a large woman, and she somehow intuitively knew. We simply lay on the floor, and she just held me, so like holding me together, <laughs> you know, for maybe an hour. I just couldn't move. It was so powerful. But I that I... I could say, is that archetypal? Or really, was it these non-human intelligences? This huge ship filled with it, far too powerful for me to experience, unless it did uh, reduce itself, the frequency, so that I could experience it. But I, have, when I was still in my doubting period, <laughs> before the deaths even, I, I would say, to, I went to Europe uh, right after that, and always, I would think, at least i know there's no way i could have made that up that is real that's another dimension of reality that was so powerful and i knew that the consciousness was love and light and that our planet had reached a point that it could hold that and ground it in the planet and over and over again i would hear that we will make it we are working toward a, a, a giving birth to a higher consciousness and that this was one of the greatest symbols of it but I couldn't really limit that to a definition of archetype or non human. I don't know what to do with it, except that it was consciousness that was love and light that had come from, uh, come from, I'm thinking spatially, but we had now connected with it. What I experienced, I felt was our species experience.
0: And you mentioned there were two other women there with you. Did they also share that experience?
1: You know, I worked with sacred plants that day and they were with me for that. And we did the ritual for children. And so they did not see what I saw or they heard because I was singing what she said, but they felt something so powerful that they too felt that they had been transformed by that experience, even though they weren't in that altered state of consciousness. But it was a profound sacred experience that was almost frightening to them, but also very fulfilling. They knew something profound had happened.
0: And I I guess at that level the boundary between what's inside you and what's outside you sort of dissolves.
1: Yes. Yes. Yes, the inside and outside. And that was Ishvan's experience with Pishti, too, on several occasions, that he would forget that Pishti had died. And then it didn't seem to there didn't seem to be any uh, boundary there that it was absolutely there was there was no division between the two
0: well we're really touching on some very fundamental issues about uh, the nature of reality throughout history and you and i have had many discussions ab- about the uh, historical vision of uh, different mystics the the ultimate message i think has always been uh, about oneness that we are one with everything
1: everything yes everything yes and that's a powerful experience to have. And when we come back and play our individual roles, we can kind of laugh, you know, and have a lightness about it, even our own faults and limitations. And, you know, I read about people who are these beings or these young children. I'm so grateful so many children are coming in with a consciousness that I don't have. But it's not competitive. There's nothing We don't feel less than because whatever stage of development we are, that is sacred and beautiful. Whatever level we are, that's where we do our work.
0: It seems ironic, because it, at some level the distinction between that which I'm imagining and that which is real seems so important to us at the human level. But if we're one with everything, uh, the, the distinction between reality and imagination uh, I, it becomes uh, translucent.
1: You have really said it. (laughs) I mean, that's a profound statement. That is so true. Yes.
0: Well, I'd like to have a... a the ability to give our viewers a better handle on the interface between the the collective unconscious and, and what the Tibetans called the Bardo planes or or the afterlife. At, at some level, Betty, I think uh, that we may be moving into an area where we'll be able to define these things mathematically using the mathematics of hyperspace. But uh, I don't know that we're going to uh, get there uh, a- any further through the rest of experience. You've had so many wonderful experiences, but they they sort of leave these questions wide open.
1: Yes, that's, I think, beyond my experiences. And I think that there is uh, mathematics as a language uh, that can describe the whole creation of the universe. And certainly these archetypes, their shapes, their their They can be seen mathematically, too. I think all of it can, and that is beyond mine. I think when we had these experiences, in spite of the fact that I had studied Jung and the unconscious, the collective unconscious, I didn't think of it in those terms. I felt myself present in a reality that was so vast and compared to what I'd lived my life in it, my life seemed like a square inch. I had said in Miracle of Death, I felt I had lived in one square inch of what is and called it reality. So my experience was so much vaster than that. It was filled with love and awareness, and it was, Pishti's presence was, of course, since he had died, that's what we we needed. Was to be able to experience his presence, his consciousness continuing, and of course, his consciousness was larger than it was uh, as a as a uh, twenty year old. He was always interested in those things, but on the other side, on the other side, speaking, he his consciousness was was what it could be there and could not have been was not here. But I didn't think in terms of the collective unconscious. I did think in terms of archetypes. These powerful energy structures that, uh, that help us to know what the universe is. But I, I didn't think in terms of, of Jung's collective unconscious. I think, you know, that when we think of the, the quantum sea, which we call the spirit world and The subtle world and these very, the energy coming from pure intelligence that takes the shape of an archetype. It just seemed there was, I had one experience in which this has been misunderstood. It was very, I should understand that these archetypes, this field is living and within one archetype, there can be individual beings, you know, who are, and then they can go back into that oneness of the archetype. So I have to say that I have questions when it comes to putting it in Jungian terminology. You know, it's, and I think also with, we we talk about becoming conscious of these things and going on a journey and their many structures. I mean, the certainly in the cave cultures, they had some sense of, of transformation and journeys that would transform. And certainly the details that were given in the Egyptian and in the Hebrew and then with the pre-Socratics and so on, And then there was Campbell who talked about the hero's journey. But it seems that sometimes when you, or the alchemical structure for the journey, but when you get into the journey, everything starts happening. And you can't exactly say there's stage one, two, three, and four, is that you're just plunged into it in a way. And all kinds of things are happening simultaneously and before and after. And I couldn't categorize it in terms of the collective unconscious. And yet... When we bring forth an archetype, it's because the species has reached a consciousness that brings forth that archetype. And we know the nature of the quantum sea in our time and place through that archetype. And I think that the archetype that was always after me was the feminine goddess, that female divinity, but that's what our whole species has neglected and has drawn forth from the quantum field in this archetypal form of the feminine being who is the earth, who is nature, the cosmos, and soul at the same time. And I think we're bringing forth that archetype collectively because we must have it. Uh, one experience I had after Pishti died was a, a shaman from South America came and he wanted to work with San Pedro with Ishvan and me in Death Valley. And so we did. And I, you know, I had read about, red myths in which the person, a person who went to the underworld got stuck in the underworld. Well, I did. I experienced that and I was at a place of total symmetry, total balance and nothing could happen. And then out I, I experienced this happening. I felt it coming across the desert, this incredible sorrow and grief uh of the feminine archetype that what has happened on the earth to all the children. Certainly, I could pick it up because I was in grief for Pishti, but I knew this was far greater than anything I could possibly have experienced. The grief was so intense. And later, I came to realize in my experience with Syrah is that she was the other side of that archetype. We had split it off. We had the ability to parent, to love, to have compassion, and yet we didn't have the other side of it's dimensionality of its uh, infinite aspect of its of its continuation and that had been sliced off so what i experienced was that that sorrow the grief with nowhere to go and she screamed through my throat it can never be healed and certainly i had thought of all the people who suffered so much they had to feel there's no way this can be healed what has happened and later year, a few years later, when I had an experience with Syrah coming into me and embracing that, that half that had been split off. And I realized that that's our species is trying to to bring back the wisdom, the, that was lost in, uh, Hebrew, uh, mysticism. That other side, you know, we were told no one could see her, that she had to go back to the other world because she couldn't exist here. And then I think the species is bringing her back and merging her with that, that sorrow, that horror, that disbelief, uh, of our ability to suffer but see no meaning in it. And I think what is happening to our species is that that is merging. That archetype is coming, it's finding its wholeness, you know, that it's been split off, and now is a time when it's going to be whole.
0: I'm very touched, Betty. You're speaking like a prophet, and uh, (laughs) I... I have no more words for uh, you know I don't think there's anything we could say to add to what you have just said that's so profound and and so important I'm I'm so honored to be able to share your uh, prophetic words with with our audience. Uh, I know we've done a number of interviews in the past but I think uh, this one tops them all Betty. What a what a joy what an honor it is to be with you today.
1: Uh, Jeff, you know, when I went through that first part of it, that almost killed me. <laughs> you know, that feeling, that screaming across the desert, that it could never be healed and knowing how many people have experienced that. And I couldn't, it took me a long time to know I had very many different views about it. And, uh, and then later the healing and the coming together. But I think that we're all in that place where we, we long for that wholeness and that meaning and that purpose. And I think as a species, that is what we're working together uh, to, to bring into time and space.
0: Betty Kovacs, thank you so much for sharing this wisdom with me today and, and with our viewers.
1: Oh, thank you, Jeff. I always like to talk with you.
0: Well, we will have more. I uh, I think uh, there's much more to say and what you have just said deserves repetition over and over again. So, uh, I, I hope to be with you many more times in, in the future, Betty. Thank you so much. Well,
1: thank you. I hope for that too. <laughs> thank you, Jeff.
0: And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us.
1: I'm going to.